This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Hi, friends. It's Nate. Welcome to Almost Heretical. I've mentioned this on the show before and, and definitely over on Utterly Heretical, the second podcast that we do, but I'm really fascinated by science and space and Mars and just all of it. And I think I've always been interested in this, like deep down. Um, but before I reimagined my faith, I, I just don't think I allowed myself to really think about some of these topics because they felt like they contradicted my faith in a lot of ways. But when my faith started evolving years ago, I found a new fascination with science, space exploration. It just it felt like it really spoke to me and, and who I've always been. And in a lot of ways, it is a very spiritual experience for me, just having my mind blown, looking out at the stars and, and going on deep researching binges. And so I want to have some of those discussions about these topics on this show with all of you. And the first guest that I've invited on to talk about some of this is Dr. Mario Livio. He's a world-renowned astrophysicist and fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. He's published more than 400 scientific articles. He's made significant theoretical contributions to topics ranging from cosmology, supernova explosions, and black holes, to extrasolar planets, and the emergence of life in the universe. And he's written many books, including the one we're going to talk about today, which is Galileo and the Science Deniers. He's also appeared on The Daily Show, 60 Minutes, Nova, On Being, and many other programs. Oh yeah, and for 24 years, he was an astrophysicist at the Space Telescope Science Institute, which operates the Hubble Space Telescope. Pretty cool. You'll probably hear in our chat that our religious backgrounds are quite different. And because of this difference, I think we agreed on the problem in the Christian church's science denialism, but maybe disagreed on how pervasive that problem is and how difficult it is to really fix it. So stick around after the interview and I'll share some follow-up questions that I'd love to hear your thoughts on. Okay, here's my chat with Dr. Mario Livio. Oh, Mario, I'm uh, super excited to have you on the show. It's it's sort of a bit different of a type of guest that we usually have on. We usually re, uh, interview people that used to be, let's say, Christian or evangelical, maybe fundamentalist, and um, have left maybe some of those traditions. Um, but I, I I am just personally very interested in space and um, science in general, and and and. My story is that I, I did grow up Christian. Um, I still consider myself Christian, but a lot of things changed, and I started to. I don't, know if you, I don't know if you're familiar with the deconstruction movement, which is basically, you know, stopping and changing some of your beliefs that you analyzing them and, and starting to believe maybe some different things. And for me, one of the things when I started doing that was realizing I didn't the the, the uh, Christian culture that I was in didn't allow me to really think about science. It didn't allow me to be curious in that way. It put up a lot of barriers around that curiosity. Um, and so I'm just super excited to get to talk to you. And I thought maybe for, you know, all the kids out there like me that, that grew up in maybe in some of these evangelical or fundamentalist circles where we didn't get to think about this, maybe we could just start off by <laughs> indulging some of the, the curiosity and, and interest that I have and just ask you some fun space questions and kind of start off that way. Sure, you know, you can ask me, of course, anything uh, you want. Uh, I uh, can tell you that I actually was not born Christian. I yeah. was uh, Jewish, uh, but I'm, a non, I'm not a religious person myself. Um, I, I must say that I'm very sorry to hear that your um, Christianity uh, at some point... Uh, put obstacles uh, in your, your, on your curiosity and you are wanting to know science. Um, and, 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 and that really saddens me because uh, it really shouldn't be like that. And I, I don't know if you're aware, but I mean, you know, the Vatican, for example, has an observatory, it has scientists who work there, they organize scientific meetings and so on. So, and, and many of my colleagues, uh, are religious people, uh, either Christian or Jewish, uh, and somehow 
they did not see that their religion has put serious obstacles in them being scientists. So uh, I'm happy to talk to you about your experiences, but I'm saddened by the fact that there are places where the religiosity appears to be putting some obstacles against curiosity or against, uh, you know, wanting to know science. I mean, these things happened during the Middle Ages, yeah. but, but they shouldn't happen today so much. Sure. Yeah. And I, I totally want to talk about that, too. And and in your the research you've done on Galileo and kind of comparing that to where we are today and we see the denialism and um, and and lots of things there. So, OK, so let's set that aside for a second. We'll get into religion and we'll get into denialism. Um, so let's just go to space. Let's think about, um, you know, you worked for 24 years. Do I have that right? With yeah, the- I worked till 2015 with the Hubble Space Telescope. Okay, so I think my, just my first natural question is, what kinds of things did you see that that surprised you? You probably saw a lot. Was this an was this an everyday occurrence where you're seeing something through the telescope that that surprised you, or was it um, you, you saw a lot of things that maybe you expected to see? But I want to hear about some of those like surprises, I guess, something that you saw that you were just blown away by. Yeah, let me let me only just mention that the Hubble Space Telescope is in space, so. In some sense, you don't look through the telescope. Sure, sure. Uh, the, you're gonna have to forgive. You're gonna have to forgive my uh, my uneducated questions here too. Yeah, the, the, and the data, audience, our audience is pretty lay, yeah. non-scientific, probably. Yeah, so. the data simply comes down, you know, from sure. the telescope. Uh, and also, I'm a theoretical astrophysicist, so in some sense, I'm not even the person who, who really looks directly at the data that come down from the telescope. I'm the person who then, you know, thinks about that data, develops models for the universe Mm. and so on. Uh, But, okay, having said all this, yes, there were many, many surprises. Um, And I I will mention surprises in two areas which are, uh, you know, very different from one another because one happens on a very small scale and one on a very large scale. So, one of the things that happened during the past two decades or so, um, a little bit more, uh, is that we discovered planets around other stars, uh, mm. you know, not in the solar system, around other suns, if you like, okay? Sure. And in some cases, observations with the Hubble Space Telescope managed to tell us something about, believe it or not, the composition of the atmospheres of those planets. Uh, which is truly amazing when you think about this. I mean, so, you know, here are these stars which are very distant. There are planets that orbit them in the same way that Earth and other planets orbit our sun. But every now and then, our line of sight is such that the planet transits the star so that it kind of, you know, eclipses it a little bit. It, It goes in front of the star so that some of the light of the star has to pass through the atmosphere of the planet. And then by looking at what was absorbed in the atmosphere of the planet, we can tell what (laughs) elements are there. So that's that's one fantastic uh, observation, which uh, I really didn't expect that we'll be able to do, and we did. Uh, Something else which came as a total surprise to everybody is that observations with Hubble and with other telescopes, I mean, usually these observations, you know, they combine combine data from several telescopes, have shown that not only that our universe is expanding, which is something that we knew since the 1920s, but that this expansion is accelerating, it's speeding up. Our universe is expanding at ever increasing speeds. And this came as a complete surprise to all of us. And actually, that expansion is driven by something that we now call dark energy, which we, I'll be honest with you, we don't have a clue what it is. Uh, But it's still driving this accelerated expansion of the universe. So these are just two examples of the types of things, you know, planets and the universe as a whole. That was actually one of my questions was about dark matter. Now, is dark matter the same as dark energy? No. Do we know enough to say? That okay, okay. so then what no, is... completely different. 
Okay, okay. so then dark matter. What I know we I, my my understanding is we still don't know much about that as well. What yes. do we know about that? Yeah, we know quite a bit. I mean, okay, so dark matter and dark energy are completely two different things. Dark matter is matter but that doesn't emit or absorb any light. Now, how do we know it's there? We know it's there because we see its gravitational effects. Mm. It's the thing that holds, for example, clusters of galaxies together. It's like the skeleton of the structure of the universe, if you like, dark matter. Yes, it, it has gravity, just like ordinary matter, only not like ordinary matter, you don't see it in light because it doesn't emit or absorb any light, okay? So, but we can map it by, by mapping the gravitational field, we can actually know where the dark matter is and, and so on. What we still don't know about dark matter is what are its constituent particles? That we don't know. There are many experiments all around the world trying to detect the particles of dark matter. And those have not been detected yet, okay. Dark energy is something completely different, is something that fills out all space uniformly, completely uniformly. And what it does is it exerts a, a repulsive gravitational force. It pushes the universe to accelerate. Instead of like normal gravitational force is an attractive force. It attracts things to one another. This one actually has a repulsive force and it pushes the universe to accelerate. And about that, we know much less than we know about dark matter. Okay. So dark, so dark matter is actually something that we could, if you were flying in a, some sort of spacecraft and you could get close, you would, would you bump into it? Is it a, it's a... No, unfortunately, no, because okay. the, 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 re the reason it doesn't emit or absorb any light is that it interacts very, very weakly with ordinary matter. So you would not feel it because, okay. you, you know, it would sort of pass through you. Uh, but you you do feel its gravitational force. Okay. All right, just running through my questions here. Um, what is a wormhole? Can it theoretically exist? Uh, yes, so wormholes can theoretically exist. Um, wormholes uh, are uh, a consequence of uh, Einstein's theory of general relativity. Um, and they uh, can connect uh, things like two black holes or something like that. Black holes by themselves are objects that warp space in their vicinity so much uh, that, uh, you know, nothing, well, almost nothing can escape from them, uh, okay? Um, so a little bit like, you know, if you put something really heavy on a trampoline as, and it causes it to sag by a lot, okay? It warps the space very, very much. That's a black hole, okay? Now you can have two such black holes, for example, and they can be connected through a wormhole uh, between them. Now, the, the reason that wormholes attract some attention is that in principle, if you could somehow get into a wormhole, uh, then you could pass enormous distances at incredibly fast speed. In fact, faster than the speed of light, which normally is not allowed. Uh, uh, so you could, you know, reach places, different places in the universe. Now, the question is, can you, even if these things exist, we've still not seen any such thing, okay? We've not, not seen a, a thing like this, but theoretically, in principle, it exists. The question is, can you actually get into a wormhole without being torn apart or crushed or whatever, you know, and not, not survive this? So, believe it or not, but just about a couple of weeks ago, a paper was published which showed that 
under some very, very special conditions and with a very particular model of the universe, uh, actually even something like a human could survive passage through a wormhole. Wow. Uh, now, this is interesting theoretically so far. As I said, no such things have been discovered yet, uh, nor you know, do we know if the conditions for that particular paper um, are, are really satisfied. So don't take that to mean that tomorrow we will be able to travel <laughs> through a wormhole somewhere. But it just so happens that uh, actually, two new papers on wormholes just appear in very recent literature. You know, science and scientific pursuit, it seems founded upon this search for the unknowns and kind of curiosity about things that we don't know yet. Um, I know you've talked a bit and written about curiosity and and the importance, um, just for humans, the importance of that characteristic. Why, why is curios curiosity so beneficial and where does this where do you, where do you suppose this comes from well curiosity look curiosity is what has brought us to where we are i mean uh, uh, you, humans have always been curious even about things that did not involve just their simple everyday life uh, i mean you know <laughs> humans did not study quantum mechanics because they thought that that will help us them in the in the supermarket. Uh, um, eventually, quantum mechanics does help you in the supermarket because all the computers they're used there, and, you know, all these things and so on, you know, are based on quantum mechanics. Uh, but when when humans started to talk about quantum mechanics in the subatomic world, uh, they didn't think it will help them in the in the supermarket. So. Uh, and when Einstein developed his theory of special relativity and general relativity, uh, he, he developed it because he wanted to understand, you know, how gravity works, uh, what about motion and so on. But today, uh, you know, everyone uses a cell phone and that cell phone uses a GPS system. Uh, and that GPS system, believe it or not, uses both Einstein's special relativity and general relativity. Mm. So if you thought that those two esoteric theories, you know, have no connection to your life, they do. Because without them, you couldn't use the GPS system and you, you, you know, you would not get to where you want to go. Uh, so, uh, so curiosity always answered questions way beyond the immediate. Um, uh, stuff that we want to do. Plus, there has been a study by a, a famous psychologist which showed that um, he talked to about 100, uh, he interviewed about 100 extremely creative individuals. And what he discovered is that if there is one thing that is in common to all extraordinarily creative individuals, is that they all, were all extremely curious. Mm. So curiosity seems to be a, a necessary ingredient of creativity. Uh, mm. and, and we can even understand that because, you know, what does it mean to be creative? Very often it means that you are able to borrow ideas from one area and use them in a completely different area. But to actually know about this, you need to be very curious to begin with, you know, to know about these things. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, he works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. 
<laughs> it's so funny when you, you brought up the, the cell phones and I, I just always have this thought of someone, you know, Twitter, it's, it, it exists. And there are a lot of people that have a lot of different opinions about, about different things there, but they're able to send this tweet from their cell phone because of the, just the, the global positioning satellites that are there and thousands of, of scientific discoveries we've made over hundreds of years. And they're able to then send a tweet about the earth being flat. <laughs> um, it's just, it's, it's mind boggling. And we'll get into You're right. That, that's really funny. Yes, you're right. Oh, you know, and, and my experience in the church, as I shared um, earlier in the, in my Christian evangelical, a bit fundamentalist upbringing, um, really does stifle that, that curiosity I felt. Um, and there were, there were boundaries placed around it. Um, when you start, when you started to kind of question things that, or, or starting to maybe even believe, um, in scientific discoveries that would maybe challenge some of the, the quote unquote facts that we read in the Bible, for instance, um, and often when you start asking some of these questions in the church experiences that I've had, you'll hear things like verses quoted, like God's ways are higher than our ways. And, you know, some things just can't be understood or comprehended. And certainly there's some things that we don't understand or comprehend, but, um, this, this controlling of curiosity, I guess, is something that I experience. And I know you're saying that you've, you've experienced Christians and other, um, religious people that haven't experienced those type of that type of stifling, I guess. But what are the dangers of of stifling curiosity? So, look, this actually brings us uh, very, very much into the the topic of this latest book of mine, Galileo and the Science Deniers, because what you described is very much the experience that Galileo had some four hundred years ago. Um, so, here is the thing: uh, very often, people who heard only peripherally about Galileo, think about his case against the Inquisition and the Catholic Church as if it was science against religion. It wasn't, and Galileo never saw it as such. Mm -hmm. Galileo himself was a religious person. What it was, it was a clash between science and literal interpretations of scripture. Yeah. This is what Galileo was fighting against. So Galileo, what you described as part of your experience is exactly what Galileo was pointing out. Galileo was saying, listen, the Bible was never intended to be a science book. Hmm. And he gave examples as to why he thought that was the case. He said, look, even the planets are not even named there. You know, so how could it be a science book? Uh, plus, you know, he said he did not believe that the same God who has given us our senses and intelligence and reason wanted us to abandon their use. So he, he said every time there is an apparent conflict between what the Bible says and what science shows us, it simply means that we didn't interpret correctly the Bible. And we should change the interpretation because that was really meant for common people to understand and to guide us. You know, he used the word for our salvation and not to teach us science. Uh, so, you know, the people that you mentioned that, you know, stifled your curiosity and brought to their, uh, as reasoning to that, they brought some contradictions with biblical texts were doing precisely what the Inquisition was doing 400 years ago with Galileo. Uh, and the reason that I, I'm, I'm upset by that really is that, you know, by now, two popes in the Catholic Church, both Pope John Paul II and the current Pope, Pope Francis, you know, admitted directly that Galileo was right, and the theologians, his theologian adversaries were wrong by, you know, confusing what the Bible writes and the interpretation of that text. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm curious as we talk about as we talk about your book on Galileo. Is this the the heart of why you felt it was so important to write this book, or or what what kind of motivated you to to go to Galileo in the times that we're seeing now? Right, there there, there were there were several reasons. So first of all, you know, I'm an astrophysicist. Galileo, to some extent, is uh, you know one, certainly one of the fathers uh, of modern astrophysics. So. Uh, I, I was always, you, you, you know, in awe of this person. Uh, he was also a very fascinating person in himself. Uh, he, you know, on one hand made these enormous discoveries. On the other, he was uh, not the nicest person. He could be very <laughs> sarcastic and uh, very offensive to his uh, opponents. Uh, of course, he's, uh, you know, his story is tragic in the sense that he was put on trial by the Inquisition and so on. So there were many aspects of his life that I found fascinating. That's one reason. But you pointed out correctly now that another major reason was that I was very, very alarmed, I would say, by the sci some of the science denial that we still see today. For example, in relation to climate change, uh, in, certainly in the early treatment of the pandemic, the current pandemic in this country and in some other countries uh, and so on. And uh, that was very similar to, uh, you, you know, one would have thought that, okay, Galileo's case was 400 years ago. We found, we, we learned something since then. But here we are today and, and we still see very serious science denial. Now, the motivations are not always the same. As I, as I said, in Galileo's time, the main motivation was this conflict between literal interpretation of scripture and what science was saying. Now, to some extent, that still exists today. And you pointed out that you have experienced that in your own education. But today, sometimes the motivation for the science denial is different. It can be political or economic. For example, most of the objections to climate change or to solving climate change don't come because of religious uh, reasons. They come for political reasons, for uh, sure. you know, economical, for people not wanting to change their way of life, uh, for wanting to get reelected and so on. So the motivations can be quite different today than they were then. But the net result at the end is the same, that you have people who deny what science is telling us. And, uh, you know, and, and, and that has very, very serious consequences. I mean, you still see people here today who refuse to wear masks as a political statement, as if, what is the, the relation? I mean, we're talking here public health. You, you, this is so obvious. I mean, you don't have to be a scientist to understand that if you have a disease that spreads through the air, then if you wear a mask, this decreases the, you know, the danger of, 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 of it being contagious and it decreases the danger to yourself and to others. Uh, you, you know, if you, even if it were just to others, you want to protect your fellow humans, right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, so uh, that's that's part of the thing. I, I yeah, I mean, I don't want to keep attacking, I guess, the the church. But when we talk about COVID nineteen and we talk about masks, at least in this country, it it does seem like one of the if we look at um, a block of people, Christians, evangelical Christians in this country, were some of the staunchest deniers of the 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 best science we had on masks and. Um, as far as the anti-mask movement, that was, it did feel like, a, it does feel like largely um, some of the leaders there wanting to open churches up again, wanting to be able to gather in these places. You know, there's a, a prominent Christian pastor, um, John MacArthur claimed, quote, there is no pandemic saying that only 6% of cases had COVID listed as the only reason, as the only cause of death, um, which is there's there's reasons why that that it, that that doesn't hold up as a fact, but um, yeah. So I, I guess I, this is why I I get concerned about evangelical Christians specifically because 
and I don't know that that one's that that's tricky for me, like with the with the COVID nineteen and the mask, because it doesn't seem like there's any reason why it need like with with the um we talk about evolution or something like that. I can see maybe why it would challenge some of their beliefs, but with masks, it it, it seems like it it actually supports some of their beliefs as far as loving your neighbor and um yeah, it's, it's confusing to me why that became such a stance outside of what you're saying, the political reasons. To me, that exposed the the connection between. Um, let's say Trump and evangelicalism because of that. It's like, there's no other reason for this. It's got to just be a political thing. Yeah, I, I must say that I personally didn't know that the evangelical, uh, you know, uh, movement uh, was a serious core in the objections to mask. I, I, I wasn't aware of that. Mm. Uh, I, I'm sorry to hear that that's the case. I mean, again, you know, as you just said, you would have thought that to protect your fellow human, you should do everything you can. Um, and uh, wearing a mask is, relatively speaking, is really quite easy. You, you know, yeah. I, I have seen, you, you know, you can see on television now some of the college volleyball for women playing, they are playing volleyball with masks. Yeah. You, you know, so they can even do a very uh, serious sport while wearing the mask. So yeah. clearly it's not that difficult to wear the mask. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I, I, it's really beyond me why, why you know, these objections to, to such things as, as masks. The, the, the thing about, you know, gathering people in churches and so on. I mean, you know, I, I sympathize with the, with the idea that uh, people, you know, there are many people who get a lot of support from those, right. uh, you know, gatherings and so on. And, and I understand that uh, they lack that. I mean, it's, it, it, it is serious when people cannot meet, you know, and cannot do things which are very important to them. I understand that. But at the very least, try to do that in a safe way. You know, I mean, wear masks, keep distance, uh, wash your hands after that and your face, you know, and so on. I mean, these are things that are really not that difficult to do. Um, and, and they do make a big difference. And, you know, we have lots of people dead, unfortunately. I mean, you know, this country has more than half a million people. And, and we've seen hundreds of thousands deaths, you know, in Italy, in France, in Spain, you know, it, it, it is really sad. I mean, mm -hmm. this has been a difficult pandemic and still is a difficult mm -hmm. pandemic. Luckily now, of course, we have vaccines, but, you know, vaccines are also thanks to science. I mean, why do we have vaccines? Because the scientists worked really hard yeah. uh, and came up with a vaccine. And it's, and it's prominent in, I mean, in a number of communities, but specifically in Christian communities, the anti-vaxxer movement is, is very strong. And, and I guess this, this comes back to this. And I, I feel like I'm, I'm trying to convince you that, that Christians are at, at some of the, the forefront for science denialism still today. Um, yeah, I'm like on, I'm on team anti-Christian here. <laughs> I don't think, I, I honestly don't think it's, I think when you say Christians, you, you, you are making them a, a, a disservice. I, I, I think, you know, there are probably some Christians who do that as they are, as there are presumably some people from other religions who do that. Well, let me throw you one. Let me throw you one here. Four in 10 Americans. This is 2019, I believe Gallup poll. Four in 10 Americans believe that God created everything that we see around 10,000 years ago. And these are going to be most of the friends and families of the listeners to this show are going to probably hold that belief. Um, but four in 10, four in 10 Americans that you meet on the street every day are, believe that everything we see was created about, about 10,000 years ago. And what would you say to, to, to someone who still holds that belief? Well, you see, so that type of belief is precisely the type of thing that Galileo was fighting against. I mean, because that comes from a literal interpretation of the biblical text. And, you know, Galileo pointed out, and as I said, two popes by now agreed with him that 
you know, this is not the right thing to do. That the Bible was not written as a science book. So, uh, you, you know, Pope Francis specifically said, and you can read it in my book because I give the, the precise quote, you know, it says that the Big Bang and evolution do not contradict the act of creation, you know, and so on. So, so this is the Pope. This is the highest authority in the Catholic Church saying that. Uh, and this is the same church that has put Galileo on trial. So, you know, things have changed in 400 years. Mm. Uh, and, 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 and we must learn from that. Um, I have nothing and you should have nothing against, you know, people who use uh, scripture or any kind of other types of uh, books uh, for their ethical behavior, for a moral behavior, for, you know, uh, for, for their conduct towards other people and, and things of that nature. Uh, but uh, it, it is really only at the times when, when these anti-science uh, outcomes, uh, you know, appear because of literal interpretations of the biblical text, that's when, when that's not good. I mean, those, those are the, the types of clashes that should be avoided. Yeah. And I think they have to come through education. There is no really any other way. I mean, it has to come through education from a very, very young age. Yeah. And that seems to be, I guess, part of what I'm saying, too, is that if if a portion of our population and hopefully it's not 40 percent, even if, even though four out of 10, you know, it seems like about 40 percent would would believe that as far as God creating everything we see about 10,000 years ago, they're probably teaching their children that. And they may be, it may be similar to me. Whereas when you hear information that contradicts that, you kind of plug up your ears and, you know, I remember rooting for us to not find water on Mars and things like that, because it would contradict the the story that I needed to, you know, I, that I believed to be true and I wanted to be true about um, God and my worldview. Um, which is just a kind of a sad way to live. And I, I'm so much more excited to live the way I live now, which is um, antici anticipating and um, wanting to find these discoveries. But look, I mean, there are some very simple things. I mean, you know, uh, you know, again, talking about Galileo, you know, life expectancy today is about twice what it was in Galileo's time. And that's only because of science. Hmm. So, you know, we should, we should really follow the science, not because science is always right. Scientists actually are always the first to admit that all science is provisional. Every scientific theory is only as good as the data that are available at that time. You know, when Newton came out with uh, special and general relativity, this you know, said that Newton's theory of gravity was not the full theory. Now, it doesn't make, it didn't make Newton's theory completely wrong. It just, you know, expanded the theory to situations where Newton could not have thought about. Hmm. Um, and, but, but this is similar to all science. I mean, one day we may find that Einstein's general relativity needs to be expanded to something yet you know, broader, which includes his theory as, as some sort of a sub-theory, you know, within that. I think this, though, is the reason why some Christians look at science and go, see, they, they know that they're, they're wrong. They know that, I mean, evolution is just a theory, right? Like you hear that, the quote-unquote, just a theory. Um, they, know they're, they know they're wrong, but talk a little bit about, I've heard this quote that the, with the scientific method, like your whole idea with science is being less wrong every single day. That's exactly the point. Science is always provisional, but science has this ability to self-correct. Mm. Science continuously corrects itself. And sometimes the correction takes a few years and sometimes it takes decades and sometimes it may take centuries, but it always corrects because at any given time, the theory that you have have to be consistent with all the known facts. And for example, 
the theory of Darwinian evolution by means of natural selection is the best theory that we currently have. And there, there is lots of experimental evidence for it and observational evidence for it. You know, Darwin's theory of evolution by means of natural selection would have been extremely easy to refute. For example, had you found, had you managed to find a fossil of a rabbit that was from 3 billion years ago, this would have totally refuted Darwinian evolution. Because in Darwinian evolution, there were no such things as rabbits or as evolved as rabbits 3 billion years ago, mm. yes? So it would have been easy to refute, just mm. find one. But no, there are none. In fact, we only find the stages as outlined in Darwinian evolution. Mm. And we have lots of those. So uh, this is the strength of science. It is not that scientists want to be correct all the time. They know that their theories are only provisional and only as good as the data that is are available at any given time. Yeah, I love that. As we wrap up a bit here, it's a few closing questions. You know, like I mentioned, a lot of the listeners of this show, and it's becoming prevalent just in our country in general here in America, and I know a lot of the listeners here aren't, aren't American as well, in the West even, um, de denialism. And um, we, all, we all know people, and it's becoming very polarized. And you, you mentioned um, for political reasons too. I think that's, that's definitely a play here. But we still, we still, especially once COVID's over, we still have meals with these people. We still have um, conversations with those that are in, that, in those camps of, of denialism. What have you found? And I feel like this is, the, this is the, the prominent question right now that everyone's trying to think of. But how do, we, how do we have these conversations? What are helpful ways that are productive? You know, is it just sharing more facts with someone? Is fa are facts the... The what, what's needed here, or is there some other? Is it story? Like what? What? What do you have you found to be helpful in as far as yeah, trying that, to convince someone? That is an extremely important question. I, I'm very happy that you asked this because, uh, you know, this I've been wrecking my brains about this particular yeah. question, uh, and it is a very important question. And you know, let me tell you that I I only found um, partial answers, not not full answers. Okay. So to present the facts is good. You know, it's always good to present what are the facts that support your point of view, you know, as opposed to the other point of view. However, there are many psychological studies that show that once adults have formed an opinion, it is very difficult to change their opinion, even when you present them with contradictory facts. Extremely difficult. And the only other two ways that I discovered that I think help in some sense are the following. One, believe it or not, is precisely the type of person that you, you personally, hmm. actually give an example to. And let me explain what that means. It helps a lot if the person who wants to present to you a something that contradicts what you believe in, it helps a lot if that person once believed in that same thing, but changed his or her mind. Yeah. So you being a, in the past a pastor, yes, and yep. you having changed your mind is much more convincing than if I, who have never been really religious myself, come and tell them the same thing. Yeah. And this is also part of the reason why I keep repeating the fact that two popes, you know, say yeah. that all of these things, because... It was the Catholic Church that put Galileo on trial for saying things that contradicted literal interpretations of scripture. But by now, two popes have said that Galileo was right. 
and not the theologians who disagreed with him. Mm-hmm. And that has more convincing power than if I tell them that. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. The second thing, which I also mentioned briefly, is that I think that because I said that once you are an adult and you form this opinion, it's very hard to change. We have to start with very small children. Yeah. We have in the education system, we have to introduce the appreciation of science, not to make everybody a scientist. I mean, God forbid, we don't want a society which is all scientists. We need the humanists. We need the philosophers. We need the artists. We need the musicians. We need all of those. But all of those need to understand a little bit what science means and what science makes for us. Mm -hmm. They all need to know that their cell phone that they're using uses Einstein's special relativity and general relativity. And that the fact that the phone works is only because we understand quantum mechanics, Mm. Uh, you know, things like this. They all need to know that life expectancy is today twice what it was 400 years ago because of science. So they all need to appreciate what science does and how it works. How this fact that scientists don't think that they are always right, but they think that they all the time have to self-correct based on new data. They need to understand this scientific process, if you like, yes? And, yeah. and the, the so-called scientific method. I mean, scientists really very rarely work precisely the way the scientific method is supposed yeah. to work. But still, generally, they do correct themselves based on you know, new findings. Uh, and, and, and people need to understand that. These are the only things I can think of. Yeah. And you know, I don't pretend that this will convince everybody because it probably won't. I mean, the fact is that we see that it doesn't, right? Yeah. But, but hopefully, you know, it will every now and then, you know, you, there is this, you know, this young woman, Greta Thunberg, you, you know who yeah. she is? Yeah. Yes. Uh, you, you know, she's 17 years old. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, she's 17 years old and she understands more than our former president, <laughs> What climate change can do to us? You know, I mean, so because she, from a very young age, she, she, you know, she started reading this. You know, she read all these large reports, you know, done by hundreds of scientists about climate, you know, and so on. And this, she read all those reports, this young woman. It's incredible. Or, you know, you have this other young woman, Malala Yousafzai. Hmm. You know, the, it is this young Pakistani girl who was shot in the head by the Taliban and they almost killed her, but she survived and she went on to win the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, you know, and she's is now still a big activist. You know, why did they shoot her in the head? because she was fighting for education for young girls. You know, this is when she was like 14, 15, you know, 16, was fighting for education for young girls. So these are the people who can make the change. You know, these people who fight for education. So these are the only ways that I can think of. I feel like I know what your answer to this is going to be, but I think I think I want you to say it anyway. But what what is the most dangerous, in your opinion, dangerous scientific finding um, that is being denied right now? We talk about Galileo and how this was happening 400 years ago, and it's still happening today. If you could wave a magic wand and and change the minds of deniers on one topic, what would that topic be? Uh, I imagine climate change. Yeah. I, I think because uh, you know it's a real danger. Uh, climate change right now is is a real danger. I mean, it's uh, you know anything anything that threatens either human life, like the COVID nineteen pandemic, or the future of the Earth's biosphere. Yeah, these are very serious things. You know, it, it is never a smart idea 
to bet against the judgment of science, never. And I pointed out why, not because science is always right, but because science corrects itself, you know, and so on. To do so in cases when human life is at stake or the future of the Earth's biosphere is at stake is, is absolutely unconscionable. So, you know, that clearly is, you know, has to be right now the most uh, important thing from, again, from a science perspective. I mean, of course, humanity is facing other sure. very serious problems, uh, which we are all seeing. Yes, uh, you know, inequality is a huge yep. problem and things like that. But from a scientific perspective. Yeah. Yeah, everyone needs to go get Galileo and the Science Deniers. That's um, Mario's latest book. What, what do you hope that people come away with after reading this book? Well, precisely what I just said, that it is a never a good idea to bet against the judgment of science. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I hope that, you know, anybody who reads this will also, um, you know, agree that uh, this, this was really a fascinating person. I mean, mm. on many levels. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I will repeat this thing. You see, you, you, because of your upbringing, you are a little bit on the extreme side. But I, I, I point out, and I will repeat that, that Galileo's fight was not against religion per se. Mm -hmm. It was against the intrusion of incorrect interpretations based on religion into scientific findings, sure, which is not the same thing. Yeah, I think, you know, I've just seen that being in, in my circle, I guess, of Christianity, which I feel like is pretty prominent here in, in America, at least. That was the experience I saw. That that was pretty foundational to, to the teachings that I heard and um, even questioning things like an eternal conscious torment in hell, which most of these ideas are coming from, um, not, not from biblical texts, but... Um, from Dante or something like that, you know, these, uh, this, this is why I, I feel like having to leave much of that, but I do agree with you that um, it's not something inherent in religion or spirituality. Um, these are, these are things that have been added or maybe the, the literal, literalist interpretations. Okay. Last question. I, I ask every guest this, as you look out at the world and maybe young people, where, where do you find hope? What do you see out there in the world that, that, that brings you a, a bit of hope? You know, when you look at uh, humanity in general and what has happened with humanity, uh, the current pandemic notwithstanding, mm -hmm. then we actually have advanced in, in many ways. I mean, you know, if you look at life expectancy, if you look at um, enormously horrible conflicts, uh, if you look at uh, even hunger worldwide, believe it or not, all of these things are improving. Mm. All of these things have been improving. I mean, we still hear about those cases where they are really bad, yes, and, and they are bad. But overall, they are actually improving. Even inequality, which is a huge problem, you know, actually globally, it actually has been improving. So there are reasons for hope. At the same time, of course, you know, we face serious challenges. I mean, look, every time we see this now on our southern border, border but you see this in Europe, between Europe and Africa, Europe and the Middle East, Every time where you have a line that separates two societies, which are very, very different in terms of their quality of life or something or freedom and so on and this, uh, there's bound to be problems. Uh, and, and these are serious problems and they don't have easy solutions. Um, but, you know, at least I see hope in the fact that some people are trying to find solutions or to try to help the problems. Uh, and, and uh, you know, for example, uh, just we had an example today, okay, that 
uh, we've been seeing, you know, a horrible year of, of uh, treatment of Asian Americans, mm -hmm. you know, horrible. This is terrifying. You know, you, I cannot even believe, you know, that we have to see such things. Yes. Yeah. But at least we see now, you know, that the president, the vice president, you know, this, they all come out, you know, and speak forcefully and very clearly against this. It, you know, so at least we see the, you know, the, the compassion, we see the, uh, the effort to try to make things better. Uh, we have had a horrible year in terms of, you know, racial uh, injustice. Uh, well, we've had many years, but this past year, you know, we have seen that come to the forefront of, of things, you know, in many ways. But at least once it came to the front pages and to the TV and to this and this, now it appears that, well, I, it's only a hope. Yes, I mean, yeah. yes, you yep. don't know. Yeah, where you hope. find hope, yep. Yeah, but I see hope that things will improve now, you know, that people are starting to, to care more about these things. Mm. Uh, so, so these things do give me uh, hope. Now, of course, there, there will be setbacks. I mean, and the pandemic has been a serious setback this year, and we unfortunately cannot control this, and we'll probably have more pandemics. I mean, uh, well, right now we, we had we waited about 100 years for it to come back, but maybe the next one will be in 10 years or 20 years, or we don't know. Um, but, but look, even on that front, right, we had a horrible pandemic, but we have vaccines within a year. You know, we don't have a cure so much, but we have vaccines. So, uh, you know, when, when humanity mobilizes to a worthy cause, um, things can happen and things happen. Uh, and, and, and that does give me hope. Now, of course, I'm not young, so I don't know how much improvement I will see during my lifetime, but you, you are still young and hopefully uh, you will see a somewhat better world uh, uh, later on in your life uh, than you have seen uh, when you were very young. Yeah, love that. We can hope. Mario, thanks for your work. Thanks for this book. Um, and I would encourage everyone to go get that. But yeah, thanks for the work that you've done. And I just any anyone who had a part in what the Hubble Space Telescope has brought to to humanity, I um, just want to say thank you. So thank you for all that you've done. Yeah, keep writing, keep speaking, and we appreciate it so much. Thank you very much. All right, well, there you go. As you likely heard in the interview, I feel a bit of hesitancy after this one. I do agree that literal interpretations of the biblical text is probably the root of the issue here, but I think it's much more pervasive than Dr. Livio might be aware of with his experience. I mean, four out of 10 people in the United States believe that everything we see was created around 10,000 years ago by God. And that is clear denial of scientific findings that we have. And so, yeah, better interpretations of the Bible would definitely help with that specific topic. And likely we will see Christians try to make those changes to their understanding and theology so that they can remain relevant. We've seen this happen a lot of times in the past. But, you know, then the next topic comes along and Christians seem to do the same type of thing. I know I did. And uh, Dr. Livio was rightfully happy that the two popes said that evolution doesn't negate creation. But notice that they didn't say something like, there's no science that we need to be afraid of, right? It's much more of a, you know, we'll, we're going to take this on a case-by-case -case basis and see if the next scientific discovery can be fit into our worldview, right? And I think here is the fundamental difference in how science and archaeology and, and other areas and Christianity approach information differently. One, science, is not afraid of anything it finds and tests and tests and tests and goes with the best information that comes out from those tests. It, it follows where the information leads. And then it holds those findings lightly, assuming that they have to hold up to more and more tests down the road. 
it's getting less wrong every single day. And that's the goal. Now, I found Christianity, on the other hand, slowly accepts certain scientific principles once they become undebatable, essentially. But the Christian method is still to try to fit it into the Bible, not just to trust science over the texts. It even seems scared of new information a lot of times. And so, it, it, yeah, it's fine for Christianity to be a religion and to, as Dr. Livio said, um, you, know, you can draw from that to improve how you are in the world and how you relate to others in the world. But I do personally draw a line where any religion isn't able to accept science and new information because it's basing how it relates to new data and information on an ancient text or ancient texts. Okay, so now I want to toss this conversation over to you and ask a few questions. I love to hear your responses to these, and I plan to use your responses in an upcoming episode. So go ahead and email a thought or a response to any of these questions to contact at almostheretical.com. Okay, here we go. Number one, do you think literal interpretations of scripture are the root of Christian science denialism today? Number two, how have you experienced science and curiosity being denied or discouraged by a Christian worldview? Three, are there foundational aspects of Christianity that feel contradictory to you to science? And lastly, is it possible for Christianity, as we see it in the West, to be fully accepting of all new science and information that comes along? Is that realistic that Christianity could become champions of science even? Okay, I'm going to keep processing this on this show as we go forward, and I hope you'll do that with me. And I'll keep discussing it with you in our monthly Zoom calls. To join us on the next Zoom call, you can visit almostheretical.com and just click on Zoom up in the top corner. All right, thanks for spending this time with me. I'll catch you next time.